Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Joshua Specht, lecturer in history at Monash University in Australia. Today we're discussing his book, Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America, published by Princeton University Press. Josh Specht, welcome to Working History. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, so what got you interested in the history of beef? Um, well, I think I had sort of had, from when I was actually an undergraduate, I had a curiosity about kind of our food decisions and how they connect to an economic system. And then when I was thinking about conceptualizing this project, this is my first book, someone basically just told me that, you know, any topic you pick, you'll be sick of by the end. So, That's right. Yeah. I got that same advice. Yeah, so I think it's pretty good. So I, I thought, well, I better be something I'm really passionate about. And so I thought, well, this food thing I care about, and I read some books, and I found lots of fascinating material about different facets of the story I try to tell. And I thought, well, I think there's a, a kind of place for someone to try to put it all together and make an overarching argument about our food system, but in particular beef. And so I just kind of went with it from there. Okay. What I find particularly interesting about the book, sort of what you're talking about, is that you use beef as an anchor to tell the story of broad changes that are happening in the American economy and the American society and political landscape during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, you know, beef is sort of the hub of a wheel, yeah. right? A multi-spoked wheel. And the production of beef really stands as a particularly illustrative example of the rise of big business business in the United States at the turn of the century. So I'm hoping that uh, what we can start out with in, in broad brushstrokes, mm -hmm. discussing how beef was produced during this time period and how it changed. So how was beef produced in, say, 1860 versus how it would come to be produced in, say, 1900 or 1905? Right. So, I, yeah, I think that's a really important kind of that's kind of the, at the biggest picture, the most important change. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, first, I want to be clear that the key here is fresh beef. I mean, I think okay. that's sort of implicit, but really mm -hmm. fresh beef poses certain technological challenges because you have to keep it preserved. And so mm -hmm. when you wanted fresh beef in, say, 1860, generally uh, cattle were raised kind of regionally or on the fringes of cities around the country. Sometimes you had shipment of live cattle over vast distances, but that was really only possible with railroads. But pretty much they were raised on the fringes of cities. They were slaughtered and they were consumed within a regional market relatively nearby. And what you had then is from the consumer perspective, it didn't, it didn't change too much between 1860 and 1900, but the cost, it was pretty expensive in 1860 to do this. Like you couldn't mm -hmm. raise cattle as efficiently in say around Boston, um, and you couldn't, you couldn't realize those economies of scale. In 1900, right, with fresh beef, you could have an animal that was maybe raised in Texas it might have been finished on the northern plains in Montana. It might mm -hmm. have been it would be taken to Chicago, uh, slaughtered there, and then its meat would be shipped fresh as far away as somewhere like New York. That story is obviously very different. It, it creates a national market for beef. In some ways, from the consumer perspective, though, between 1860 and 1900, things looked pretty similar, other than the price being much lower. And that's mm -hmm. because I like to think of it as kind of a revolution behind the scenes. The Chicago meatpackers don't want people thinking too much about how they're getting their meat. And so they want right. to kind of take over every piece of the chain except for kind of the retail butcher business. So mm -hmm. you might still buy from the same local person, but it was it's now in 1900, it's being supplied by these Chicago houses. 
consumers are able to get this beef, am I correct? Mm -hmm. Because you have changes in technology in terms of things like refrigerated box cars, right? Yes. So that that's what makes it possible. It of course doesn't it doesn't answer the question totally about who dominates the system. And of course yeah. the other piece of the story that makes this possible, and I think this is an intervention I'm really trying to make into the history of industrial food, is this abundance of land which is acquired through a kind of kind of violent dispossession of American Indians. But yeah, mm-hmm. they, the tech the, the transportation refrigeration really is what enables it to happen in a way. Right. So let's let's talk about that point about the land that's mm-hmm. really needed for this whole process to happen. What impact did this shift that you're discussing have on or how was it dependent on in a lot of ways the American West and Southwest and more specifically on Native Americans and government policies related to them in these areas? Right. I think that's a that's a really important question. Um First of all, you know, the Midwest is very important to the story, um, and I, I talk about it a fair bit in the book. Um, but as far as the emergence of this national integrated cattle system I talk about, the West is key. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I realize this because, you know, if you read accounts of the late 19th century and the American economy, the railroad looms large. And I started mm-hmm. to think, think to myself, well, hey, wait a minute. I mean, the r- railroads go over land. The land is as important as the technology. Where did this land come from? Sure. And what I realized is it's this abundance of, of Western land that gets open to cattle ranching. I think about cattle ranching as both a tool for and justification of American Indian land dispossession, which is to say when people think about seizing this land violently, they make an argument that they're putting it to its most productive use. And cattle mm-hmm. ranching is a good way to make an argument about that. I mean, you have Treasury Department officials like this guy Joseph Nimmo talking about how, you know, the West as a apparently a former barren waste is converted to a scene of enterprise and of thrift. Mm-hmm. But that's just the conceptual story. I also see in particular places, um, you can see this in Colorado during the Ute War, you can see this in Texas, you can see this all over the West, that it's not just that like the West is kind of swept clean by the, the US Army and then cattle ranching emerges. I see cattle ranching as part of kind of a micro process of dispossession. Ranchers in some mm-hmm. places are functioning like paramilitaries and they're also kind of agitating and constantly pestering the military for support. And the military's giving them this support, is that right? Yeah, I think of it not so much. I mean, there are some arguments that this is very much a, a top down directed process. I think of it mm-hmm. as kind of an overlap ideologically okay. where. In some ways, you see local kind of military officials, heads of various forts. They actually just don't really want conflict between anyone, but mm-hmm. they kind of implicitly buy a certain kind of progress argument that white Americans are making. And so when they start to hear those claims, they become sympathetic and say, well, the way to solve this is violent dispossession. This kind of overlap of interest, I think of it as. Right, right. So how was beef production then dependent, or I guess we could sort of back up and say it was dependent on sort of multiple factors coming into play, the land, the technology, the new consumer society that's being developed. And so could you talk a little bit as well, again, kind of broad brushstrokes, and then we'll, we'll whittle this down a bit, how beef manufacturing was dependent upon, but also a shaping force in the development of new ways of doing business and new ways of manufacturing in this moment? I think that, that the centralization of beef production, in particular in Chicago, but in various cities around the American West, was really important to the development of both business methods and business technology. So one mm-hmm. thing I always found fascinating is that Philip Danforth Armour, who is kind of the head of this meatpacking firm, Armour & Co., one of the traditional big four, as they're known, and also kind of the most mm-hmm. charismatic and visible, he would give these kind of you know 
fawning business interview, you know, business people would come and say, how are you so amazing? And he would always have this line where he'd say, you know, I, I think in the future, great fortunes will be made like mine out of things that people waste. And so hmm. he viewed himself as really converting waste into profit. And so mm-hmm. what that means is he was in a way he was centralizing beef slaughter to not just uh, benefit from economies of scale in Chicago, but also to start realize economies of scale on byproducts. Mm-hmm. And so you also see this kind of uh, running comment or line that you have in businesses, particularly in meatpacking from the time and other ones, that every top company will have, as they say, will have a German. And what they mean is mm-hmm. a, a German chemist, someone trained in kind of industrial applications from Germany. And they would they would put this to developing all sorts of technological uses for these byproducts. And so there was kind of early versions of R&D uh, within okay. these businesses. And so that kind of once you're accumulating the centralization of commodities in Chicago gave tremendous scope for changes in business practice and, and a word I kind of hesitate to use innovation. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, one of the things I purposely as a provocation say is there's a lot of innovation, but a lot of it's going towards exploitation. So the, sure. so the disassembly line in Chicago, the way you take apart an animal, which becomes Henry Ford says in his memoirs was a prototype for his design. Um, that was not so much about magically increasing efficiency, but allowing you to exploit your workers more fully. And so all these mm-hmm. things come out of this centralization and attempt to deal with the abundance of cattle and other kinds of animals coming into Chicago. Right. Let's talk a little more specifically about the people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of the folks that you're, you're getting at this idea of, you know, you have these, in some ways, two sides, you have the innovators and the exploited, yeah. and some of those folks are changeable. But your story in your book, which is what makes it, I think, really uh, easy to read in some mm-hmm. ways is that people are driving the story, yeah. right? It's not just this kind of top down, you know, cat, you know, cattle and railroads kind of story. Let's talk a little bit more about the people who were part of this process. Maybe we could walk through the production process and start with farmers and ranchers. And then let's talk about the the stock house and the slaughterhouse workers and the butchers and the consumers and sort of where everybody's fitting into the story and how their uh, lives and their livelihoods are being changed by beef becoming this major consumer product, right. fresh beef becoming this major consumer product in the country. So let's start with farmers and ranchers. Let's let's talk a little bit about them. Yeah. That, no, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I appreciate it too, just because I think the thing I wanted to stress is how you tell a story of these kind of abstract transformations, but it, it being mm-hmm. very much about human conflict and people. Yeah. So, right. so starting with the kind of, kind of ranchers and farmers, um, well, I think the book starts with the kind of very early ranching period, not very mm-hmm. early, but kind of the, the start of the story in the 1870s looks at this kind of time when there's kind of a there's not huge ranching corporations quite yet. You know, people mm-hmm. might number their cattle in the hundreds and they're very much engaged in a bloody process of remaking the West. And so one of the characters I talk about is this woman, Susan Newcomb, who moves as essentially a teenage bride to the plains of West Texas and starts keeping a diary. Mm-hmm. And, and and she talks about – she basically – she hates it. She seems just really unhappy. Um, and in part of that is she's lonely. She talks about how there's no one ever around. She talks about American Indians. She's never particularly specific. Uh, I don't think she could be with what she knew. But she, she talks about how they're continually depredating and attacking them. But there's never a kind of self-awareness about why those conflicts might be happening. And there's never any doubt about their right – Newcomb's right to kind of occupy this land. So mm-hmm. I use her story to both give empathy to imagine this woman in this strange, violent place, but also try to understand the kind of ideology that could unproblematically 
seize this land and remake it as as what become I call the cattle kingdom. So I try to kind of mm-hmm. get in the head of that kind of settler colonial mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one example. A bit later in the book, where I talk about the emergence of, of big cattle ranches, you know, I try to rethink the image of the cowboy, which is so important to American identity, and I try to think of them as cattle workers. So I try to understand mm-hmm. them as workers. And so I look at, at someone who was a cattle worker, a guy named Way Hamlin Updegraff. He's, he's well-educated, which is somewhat unusual. He moves from New York to New Mexico, and he just writes about his life on a cattle ranch. And what I find there is it provides a real window into his existence as a wage laborer, but mm-hmm. I also see the importance of the cowboy ideology to his self-understanding. And so what I think throughout the story, I want to both understand the structures that are placing people in these things and the ways in which some of them or many of them are exploited by the system, but also how they found meaning in it and kind of mm-hmm. took joy in it. Because I think you can't understand how he's willing to be this poorly paid cattle worker without understanding the importance of the romance to him even. Let's move then forward. So those are the folks that are raising the cattle, essentially. Yeah. What you're talking about is shifting from sort of a, a small business model, if you will, and maybe a, a family ranch yeah. to a sort of big business model oh, yes. or like a, an agribusiness model, yep. right? So let's sort of shift then into what was happening once the cows, once the cattle leave the farm, if you will, mm. or leave the ranch. Like what happens there? Who's part of that process? What are they doing? What are their experiences? like. Yeah, so this changes a bit over the period. Um, at the start of my story, basically you have the the nation's rail network runs east-west from Chicago, mm-hmm. a little bit starting to push into the west. And of course, the cattle are, are mostly beyond the railroads and kind of on a north-south axis across the plains. And so often when it gets to sale, you have the story of the big cattle drive, um, mm-hmm. which is very exciting and romantic. I try to I try to capture some of that excitement in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but often they're going to these cattle towns in Kansas, which are kind of the first point of rail connection between a national market and remote mm-hmm. ranches. And this is this is an example of kind of the human scale of the conflict. I look at these various town boosters. I think the most famous character is a guy named Joseph McCoy. And he kind of promotes his, his town of, of Abilene, Kansas. And you really see he's a kind of local businessman who kind of organizes, you know, both writes letters to ranchers but works with the railroads. And you see all these different towns competing for this business. So he kind of gets 100,000 cattle to go through his town he's promoting in one year. But then what you see is that all these towns are trying to do the same thing and they get in this battle to the extent that towns are stealing advertisements from different towns and kind of putting their own town's name on the label to try to attract business. And you see this conflict mm-hmm. between these business people kind of leading to all these towns kind of looking the same and driving mm-hmm. this. Um, so, I, I mean, I can keep going about this. So once they leave these towns, they start to head to stockyards. I don't know if you want me to start to get into the stockyards a bit. Go for it. Yeah. Yep. So this is the part where you really start to see the advantage of being these emergent uh, corporate behemoths that are the Chicago meatpacking firms. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the things they do is they figure out that they don't want to handle cattle while they're alive for very often because cattle mm-hmm. are hungry. They drink a lot. They're kind of ornery. So what you do is you're a rancher and you've sent your cattle. They've made it to Kansas. You've gotten them loaded up. They've made it all the way to Chicago. And then you basically go into the stockyards and you take bids from various people who want to buy your cattle. Mm-hmm. And what you might realize is you're only getting one offer from a Chicago meatpacking firm. You know there's a bunch, but you're only really getting one offer. And you know that there might be a market in Kansas City or Omaha, but for you it's really expensive to send your animals to another mm-hmm. location. 
But the mm-hmm. meat packers are telegraphing between each other the prices. Hmm. And so they know they deal with kind of these abstractions that are prices and you have these physical animals and you can't you can't really function in multiple markets at once, but the meat right. packers can. And so they force sure. you on your back foot. And they start to squeeze more and more profit out of ranchers. And the kinds of people who are innovating on this are people like Philip Danforth Armour, people like Gustavus Swift. These are people who are born in the American Northeast or the recent immigrants. They kind of moved to Chicago, which I like to think of as kind of the 19th century version of Silicon Valley, where you go to make right. big in business. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to realize how much they can take advantage of the centralization of markets there. Were the ranchers organizing in any way? Did yeah. they try to use power in numbers to counteract this ability of the the meat companies to basically fix prices? They try to. So in the early part of my story in the 1880s, um, one thing I kind of glossed over is there's a kind of boom in corporate ranches where investors mm-hmm. from the U.S. Northeast, but also as far away as Scotland, start setting up these huge ranches in places like Texas, places like Montana. Mm-hmm. They might have a million acres, over 100,000 mm-hmm. cattle. Um that's kind of an investment craze I, I track. They kind of go bust um, mm-hmm. due to, to various things I explore in the book. There's some bad winters. There's, they're kind of mismanaged. Um, and so then, then this corporate ranching, their power becomes relatively weak, and you get all these kind of smaller ranch-scale ranchers relatively. In the aftermath of that in the late 1880s, they tried to organize um, cattlemen's associations, and mm-hmm. they try to have conventions to fight the power of the meatpackers. Mm-hmm. But when they go to Washington, what they find is the meatpackers develop a very powerful argument they can use against them. It's one they use against butchers as well. Mm-hmm. The meatpackers always say, well, yeah, we're, we're kind of bankrupting these ranchers or making life tough for them. It's likewise with traditional butchers. But look, we've brought meat to the laboring classes, as they say. We're feeding mm-hmm. the people of the cities of the Northeast, and we're helping drive down prices for everyone. And so they use the fact that they're driving down prices to justify what they call different rules. They say it's basically mm-hmm. a new world. And mm-hmm. and any argument the ranchers make when they start to organize and make appeals in Washington, they start to sound like elitists because they have to concede sure. that decentralization is going to raise the prices that consumers pay. Right. So let's talk about some of those consumers, mm-hmm. the workers, right? Yeah. And again, moving sort of forward in the process here. So, you know, the cows are now in Chicago. They've been purchased. What then happens, right? They go to the slaughterhouse. They go to the disassembly. What are, you know, what are the folks there doing? What is their, what are their experiences like in this process? What's happening to them um, in the, you know, in the bigger picture of the shift that's going on in, in terms of, of business and the economy? Yeah. If the meatpackers are centralizing beef kind of slaughter in the first stage of of processing in Chicago. What that means is a lot of kind of the wholesale, a lot of the slaughtering that was happening locally across the U.S. is being centralized in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And things that might have been done by a semi-independent slaughterhouse where there was kind of an owner-operator, a more fluid distinction between owners and employees in various cities is now all in Chicago and they're all turning into employees. And so they Mm -hmm. all are people who work for the big four meat packers. Many of them are recent immigrants to the U.S. in this period Mm -hmm. in the 1880s, 1890s, often from Eastern Europe. They're quite marginal in terms of their rights and also in terms of their connection to the broader American economy. And they start to go into slaughterhouses. And I think the key to the profits of these Chicago houses is that they simplify most of the work process so that Mm -hmm. they can train people quickly. And then there's an abundant supply of labor. And so when Mm -hmm. it's simple, when you can train people quickly, there are a lot ready replacements 
and you end up with a legal regime that is pretty friendly to management, so there's not good mm -hmm. workers' compensation, to use an anachronistic mm -hmm. term, well, then it's pretty easy because you can basically work people nearly to death. And I tell the story of a young man, a boy, who's working in the Chicago slaughterhouses named uh, Vincenzo Rutkowski, who is basically maimed in an, in an industrial accident. And I talk about mm -hmm. his lifelong struggle to get just even a tiny amount of money. And so what I see is the disassembly line is basically putting more and more pressure on these workers to work faster and faster. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is interesting is, a few, and this is common in a lot of uh, kind of assembly line work, a few jobs get paid more highly. So mm -hmm. any part of slaughter that that you could like really ruin the animal or ruin the ruin the value of the carcass, that person mm -hmm. actually makes more money than they would have previously. Right. And but everybody else makes way less money, so the average wages go down. And so you get the emergence of what's known as the butcher aristocracy, where some workers are better paid. Now, to give those guys some credit, management often thought they wouldn't really side with their their coworkers, and they they often actually did. So they were often supportive during strikes. Um, mm -hmm. So are the are the big meat pack um, big meat companies hiring butchers then rather than sort of outsourcing them to like your independent neighborhood butcher or what's happening with with them so they're so okay so i'm, I'm going to oversimplify a bit basically there were two there are two stages to how people would get their meat and mm -hmm. this actually persisted today but it even applied before my period there's kind of the wholesale butcher mm -hmm. they basically slaughter the animal take out all the parts you can't eat and div divide the animal either into halves or quarters Mm -hmm. They sell to your neighborhood butcher, the retail butcher, who mm -hmm. then cuts it up because, you know, you're selling primarily to Italian immigrants. You might have one set of cuts. You're selling. You know, sure. So so the meatpackers want to replace the wholesale guy. They don't want the local okay. knowledge mm -hmm. to be the retail butcher. So that those people, they're all driving out of business. And presumably mm -hmm. the ones that are in Chicago maybe are getting absorbed into the system. Now, in some places, they start to move into retail butchering just to kind of bankrupt or get, get the retail butchers on board. But mostly mm -hmm. that's what they want to do. They want to be as behind the scenes as possible. Okay. And then, you know, what happens in terms of consumers? You talked a tiny bit yep. about this at the at the beginning of the interview. But, you know, besides the fact that we have, you know, lots of cheap meat, right? What, what you know, what's happening with with consumers? And how are they absorbing all of these changes? Yeah. So I think this is a, is one part of the story, you know, when I was doing the research, I kind of struggled with because mm -hmm. I thought, well, surely if they're having meat, if they're having meat all the time, and they have these high expectations, the meaning of beef in their lives must be changing in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't finding that as much as I would have thought. And I couldn't figure out why. And then I started to realize kind of who the customers of these things were, the new customers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're mostly recent immigrants from Europe, mm -hmm. or their children. Um, and what I realized is based on the kind of food eating practices of those people back in Europe, beef was was really special to them. And so the, the key transformation actually, beef didn't change what it meant, but it went from being a special occasion food, maybe back in Europe, to an all the time food once you're in America. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so what that means is beef became a metric for both your Americanization, but also your success in America. And so it became politically very important for you as an immigrant or as a, as a worker who's upwardly mobile to be having beef all the time. Mm -hmm. And so once you got beef all the time, you also wanted the best cuts of meat. And so you started to get elite Americans actually kind of anxious that, that you know, common laborers, as they would say, wanted or thought they had a right to the fancy porterhouse cut of meat as opposed to, say, mm -hmm. the round steak, which was a bit cheaper. So there sure. started to be a new kind of politics around beef. And I think what that meant, the fact that everyone kind of measured their success and their place in society around their ability to consume beef 
obviously meant that people were buying fresh beef as much as possible and just ensured these huge markets for it. Right. That's super interesting, sort of class consciousness and conflict, yeah. you know, determined by a cut of meat. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, I mean, really interesting. I think there's there's one part, I talk about this pamphlet in, in, the, in, the, in the book called Meat Versus Rice. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a labor pamphlet that is, is unfortunately advocating for Chinese exclusion. But their argument is, is fascinating from a meat perspective because what they're basically saying is the American worker eats beef and in, in their kind of racist telling the Chinese worker eats rice. Mm-hmm. And this is a civilizational struggle because if, 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 if too much Chinese labor is imported, again, in this argument, it will drag down the level of the meat-eating American worker to the rice-eating Chinese worker. And so they make an argument about the place of labor and their beliefs in its struggles in terms mm-hmm. of what people are eating. And I think that's really interesting. That is that is really interesting. Let's shift a tiny bit, but not entirely, um, to talk about another aspect or, or argument that you make in your book. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how the beef industry is really part and parcel to the development of a modern bureaucratic federal state yep. and particularly the regulatory state. You know, a lot of what you you just talked about, folks might have had an introduction to through reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, right? right? That's sort of this hallowed thing in understanding this moment mm-hmm. in history and meat packing and, and these kinds of things. And you start to create this argument, interestingly, when you're talking about how the federal government is part of this removal of Native Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And then that kind of segues into, you know, what ultimately would be a, a more kind of regulatory state around consumer goods. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that and where we see the federal government becoming involved in this story and why they do? Yeah. So I, I think I, I want to get at two overarching points in the book. Uh, the first mm-hmm. is that I, I'm glad you brought up the jungle um, because I think it does illustrate. I'll start with kind of the second half first, which yeah. relates to the jungle, which is I think if you read the jungle, Upton Sinclair's goal was revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he got was sanitary regulation. Right. And right. so because he like, wanted everyone to become socialists and then they just became, you know, more happy with the food they were buying. Right. right? I mean, if you if you at the end of the book, he uh, the main character, Jurgis, is listening to a socialist organizer and he's talking about yeah. taking the streets of Chicago. And I was reading and thinking, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of my apartment there in March. Um, but of course, it, 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 that part doesn't really resonate with readers. And I, I started to think sure. about why. I mean, it, it kind of in a way, it immediately makes sense that people care about sanitation. You know, sure, you mm-hmm. might be worked up about the rights of, of workers and all Americans. But if you're worried your, you know, your sandwich for lunch is going to poison you, you're going to mm-hmm. be more motivated on that. That's more immediate. Yeah. yeah. But I do, I think also, right, industry understood that, that working with government on sanitation issues serves their interest as well, because they want faith in these products and people kind of had their doubts. And mm-hmm. so, so they're kind of friendly to early experimentation in terms of sanitary regulation. Now, what the meatpackers aren't friendly to, though, is, is antitrust regulation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the railroads are kind of the first key for antitrust law with the Sherman Antitrust Act. But a lot of early investigations into the power of business involve the meatpacking industry. So the first investigation of the Bureau of Corporations, which is now defunct, investigated price fixing in the meatpacking industry. Um, Some huge Supreme Court cases, um, Swift and Company versus the United States in 1905, which was basically a Sherman antitrust prosecution attacked price fixing on the meatpackers. Um, and so these early ways of understanding market power were based on these investigations of meat. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I would argue their solutions are actually quite poor. We can maybe get into that in a minute. But a government grasping towards both how you investigate corporations and also how you deal with their market power was all about mm-hmm. meatpacking. Now, mm-hmm. 
the other point I wanted to make about regulation, this is maybe in a way the wonkiest bit of the book, and I, I don't know how successful I am, so I'll try to keep it brief. There's a part at the beginning where I talk about this cattle disease called Texas fever that's mm-hmm. connected to trailing cattle. And what I see is there's all these jurisdictions that try to restrict cattle mobility around this cattle disease, but they don't work because people just cross jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And what I see is that crossing of jurisdictions meant you get people starting to write to Washington agitating for federal intervention. And mm-hmm. so in the book, I try to make an argument that these local struggles on the ground in Kansas, because of how they work with crossing jurisdictions, actually have a tendency towards pushing for federal regulation, even though it didn't quite mm-hmm. materialize. Mm-hmm. And so I try to develop an argument that that is a bit wonky that maybe some economists could find interesting or, or, or legal scholars that regulation tends to match the breadth of the mobility of goods. So as goods are moving around the U.S., you're going to get a pressure on expanding the scale of regulation. And mine Mm -hmm. is trying to root that in kind of local conflict. But that's, again, that's a bit more technical, and I don't know how successful the book is on that count. Yeah, no, I think that 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 was actually really interesting when I was reading that. I wrote, I write about the textile industry, and Mm -hmm. one of the big arguments about child labor in the South in particular was uh, between New England mill owners and Southern mill owners was that you can just pick up your money and open a mill in the South and voila, you can have child labor working in your mills. And so this was, I mean, very similarly in a lot of ways, this came to be kind of a, uh, a space around which people said, or reformers said, we need to have a federal solution to this state lines, you know, when you can easily move money between regions and, you know, and States, it's irrelevant. So, um, so I found, I found that really great. I was like, Oh my gosh, another example of that. So that was, yeah, that was, that's really interesting. Um, that actually, okay. Somebody listening, there's another book for you, like find all those threads and pull them together. And I I think think that could be really cool. I think it's really relevant today because if you look at sports stadiums, right, they move around based on laws and also just businesses. And, And I think with your story, it's like the South is often a place where for labor standards, people are moving and people right. saying we need federal kind of intervention on this. Right, right. And then the question becomes, okay, well, then when he, you can do that globally, right? What happens then? Yeah. So, um, yeah, really you know, can, okay, but, you know, we're getting like a little <laughs> far afield here. Then was this, and you, you kind of mentioned this a tiny bit, but do you see this regulatory state, whether it be in terms of the bureaucracy that functions to oversee cattle movement or sanitary, do you see that as helping or hindering to make beef a staple food in the United States? For sure. I mean, this is kind of interesting because I've thought a lot about the political implications of this because I think this is a mm-hmm. view you could find kind of actually at, at not across the political spectrum, but at the at opposite ends of the left and right, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is that, I mean, one of my conclusions is that big government and big business in some ways do go hand in hand here. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that once you get this kind of sanitary regulation, well, the, the, the biggest operators are the most able to take advantage of it, uh, and it favors centralization even more. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I wouldn't use that to say that all these regulations are a bad idea, uh, but that is a, a trend I notice, and that's why you get today these kind of, some food regulations are so restrictive it kind of crushes local production. Um, the best mm-hmm. example today is around raw milk. Uh, but to move back to beef, I think that this this facilitates a centralization, it also is good for building public trust. Um, mm-hmm. And so once people have faith in their food, well, they're more likely to be comfortable with eating something produced by a kind of faceless business far away from mm-hmm. them. And I think mm-hmm. that that trust is is absolutely vital. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the, re- the way in which it was regulated around sanitation quite effectively 
you could also have all sorts of government interventions. You could you could improve labor standards in a way that would centralize, but obviously would be a lot better for these workers. So, it's, mm-hmm. so you gotta, I guess I, I, every regulation has to be thought about independently, but I think there definitely is a kind of linkage between the centralization of federal authority and the centralization of markets in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And you you just sort of hinted at this when you when you were talking about regulations and raw milk and things that were you know we talk about today. But before we wrap up, can you talk about any particular takeaways that you see as important from this story that you tell in Red Meat Republic, and how your work this is this work of history mm-hmm. um, helps to inform our current you know our understanding of current norms or trends or anything that you think is relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the first thing is I hope my kind of research is a, is a tool for people to kind of think through things today. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be going kind of out on a limb here on both of these since, you know. No, that's great. Go for it. I mean, I think one thing about the story I trace throughout is the way in which a logic of minimizing prices at all costs mm-hmm. kind of wins mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason in almost every facet beef production in America is as exploitative and dangerous as it is, is because of that price logic. Mm-hmm. So so low prices have restructured the entire supply chain of beef. And that means any way to ameliorate, ameliorate one piece of it will end up increasing prices to consumers. And so one has to be aware then that when industry tries to oppose any change, because it will increase prices on consumers, it's just a way of justifying the status quo, which is enormously mm-hmm. exploitative. So I think sure. to address any of this beyond you know me maybe saying, well, just don't eat beef, is changes that will make beef more expensive. And what that means mm-hmm. is a certain kind of environmental or food justice will also require a certain amount of economic justice, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone needs to be able to participate in this slightly more expensive, maybe slightly less beef consuming economy. And so I think thinking about how price, low prices have restructured the American economy is, is one mm-hmm. implication of the book. The other one, just I'll keep it brief, is maybe relevant to in some sense climate debates today, although the book is mm-hmm. obviously not about that at all. But I see the working out of a relationship between nature and capital in this book, mm-hmm. which is to say the unpredictability of nature in my story is forced onto the people who actually raise animals or grow crops, the farmers and ranchers. And the mm-hmm. most profitable, highly centralized parts of the supply chain are people like the beef processors. They're people who control the agricultural inputs. And so those mm-hmm. are the parts that are kind of reliable that can be highly capitalized. But what this also means is the environmental impacts are very distant from the people who have market power. And I think this allows mm-hmm. for a lot of environmental exploitation. So I think we have to take this more holistic view and think real hard about how we can kind of recouple the relationship between natural environmental impacts and capital. But I'm still thinking that bit through a bit. That's very interesting, both both points in terms of the the price, you know, low, low prices, right? Yeah. That's and And that's just not in food, right? Right, That's everything. everything. And, you know, and this idea that we need as consumers to potentially pay a little bit more to have a more positive impact in terms of, you know, whether it be labor standards or environmental standards, as you're talking about. So that's that's really interesting. And to your second point as well, this idea that we have become so disconnected from where all of our stuff comes Mm -hmm. from, whether it's food or clothes or what have you, that we sometimes lose sight of those of those bigger connections. The Red Meat Republic is really a fantastic book, and you tie well, you. all of, you tie all of these threads together in in a really great way. And there are some really interesting stories to be read in in the book. So, thank you so much for jumping on uh, the you. call today and joining us for this episode of Working History. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. 
Thanks again to Joshua Specht for joining us today to discuss his book, Red Meat Republic. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Thank you.